Hello there. You are listening to the MCC Sunday Sermon. We are so glad you could join us. We pray that this message will encourage you, build your faith on your journey with God. Enjoy. Do you know what the first ever Christmas carol performed was? At the very first Christmas carol, it wasn't performed by some church carolers. It wasn't performed in a church at all. In fact, it was performed open air in a field. It was angels singing before shepherds. Luke records it for us in his gospel in Luke chapter 2 and verse 8. This is what the Bible says. It says, Now there were in the same country shepherds living out in the fields, keeping watch over their flocks by night. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were greatly afraid. Then the angel said to them, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which will be to all people. This Christmas season, but we're starting a series as we think about Christmas and all that it means and who Jesus is and what he came to do. Joy to the world. Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you tidings of great joy, which will be to all people. For there is born to you this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be the sign to you. You'll find a babe wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of heavenly hosts praising and singing, glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace, goodwill towards men. Jesus' birth was announced as good news that would bring great joy to all people. It wasn't just good news for the shepherds who happened to hear the angels sing, and it must have been something for them to behold. It wasn't just good news for people in the first century. It's still good news for us today to understand why Jesus is good news and why the angels rightly said that it ought to bring joy for all people. You've got to understand and look at who Jesus is and what Jesus would accomplish. The Christmas account, which often is referred to as the Christmas story, is more than a story, right? Because a story might be real or it might be fictional. A story might just be a fable or some other kind of tale. But of course, it isn't just a story, it's an account. That This really happened. And so the Christmas account shows us that Jesus is the Prince of Peace, which is really good news for those of us who've ever felt distressed. The Christmas account shows to us that Jesus is the light of the world, which is really good news for those of us who've ever felt in the dark. Well, this morning, I want to look at this, that Jesus is the fulfillment of God's promise, which is actually really good news if you've ever felt disappointed. Have you ever felt disappointed? Ever felt let down? Perhaps a circumstance didn't go the way that you thought it would. It didn't pan out quite the way that you imagined. Or perhaps it was a relationship where you felt utterly betrayed. The truth is, disappointment is felt by everyone. A disappointment is felt by each of us. It's common to each of us. But when a promise is not fulfilled, or when an expectation is not matched by reality, or when hope goes unfulfilled, Well, Christmas is good news for you and I because Christmas is good news for those who've been disappointed because it reminds us that God keeps his promises towards us. Any study of the life and history of Jesus is incomplete without considering Jesus' prehistory. 
Now, a word of warning this morning, today has a lot of scriptures in it. So, so you may follow along or you may just take photos of the scripture verses to check later on. But, but when you think of Jesus and, and all that the Christmas account tells, it's impossible to look at that without also considering what were the precursors, what was the prehistory for Jesus? And by that, I mean to fully understand the uniqueness of Jesus, you have to consider the stream of predictions and promises which foretold his coming many centuries prior to his birth in Bethlehem. I'm going to take a few minutes this morning to highlight these and why they matter and how they encourage us even in our faith today. In John chapter 6 and verse 38, Jesus said, For I have come down from heaven, not to do my will, but to do the will of him who sent me. The Christmas account tells us that Jesus was born in Bethlehem, but Jesus' claim in John chapter 6 is not that his beginning was in Bethlehem, but actually that his beginning was well before Bethlehem. That Jesus came down from heaven, that he was sent from God. If something were to uh, if someone were to actually be sent from God, the least thing that God could do to support that claim would be to give a pre-announcement of his coming. I mean, lots of companies do that. Mercedes gives you advance warning when they're about to bring out their new C-Class, right? Um, Apple lets you know when they're about to bring out their new iPhone. And so it's reasonable to think that God would also let us know in advance when his messenger was coming and what he would do. And to that extent, this messenger conformed with those pre-announcements that you could judge the validity of those claims, that this person was, in fact, who the Bible claims them to be. Further, it's in God's interests to pre-announce his coming to earth. Otherwise, there would be nothing to prevent any imposter or pretender from appearing in history and claiming to have come from God. Think about it this way, that when a foreign diplomat comes to our nation's capital in Canberra that they, and come claiming to be an ambassador from such and such a country, our government would ask for him or her to, to show their passport and other documentation testifying that they represented that particular government. They're not just going to take their word for it. They want to know that there's supporting evidence. That this person really is who they say they are and that they really have come from this other government. And that's diplomats, those diplomatic papers would have a date stamped on them prior to their actual arrival in our country. If we look at proof for foreign diplomats, then why wouldn't we also look for proof from those who claim to have come from God? I mean, Socrates never had anyone foretell his birth. Buddha had no one pre-announce him. Nobody predicted the place of Muhammad's birth or Confucius or anyone else for that matter. But with Jesus, it was different. There were predictions about his arrival in history. There are streams of promises throughout the Old Testament, a few thousand years before Jesus' birth, all pointing to who Jesus would be and what he would accomplish and how he would die and rise again. Some Bible scholars estimate that up to 25% of the Bible is prophetic in nature meaning that it foreshadows and predicts the promises in detail of future events that God would bring to pass, proving that God knows the future and that God's sovereign over the future. Promises and their fulfillment are the threads that pull together all of the other parts of Scripture. And Christmas helps us to be able to highlight that in great detail. 
that no man in history compares to Jesus in this way. It sets Jesus apart from all the other founders of religion and philosophy. In John chapter 5 and verse 37, Jesus said this. He said, And the Father who sent me has himself testified concerning me. You have not heard his voice nor seen his form, nor does his word dwell in you, for you do not believe in the one he sent. You study the scriptures diligently because you think that in them you have eternal life. These are the very scriptures that testify about me, yet you refuse to come to me to have life. In other words, what Jesus is pointing out is that the Bible makes absolutely no sense apart from Jesus. In Luke chapter 24 and verse 44, again, Jesus said this. He said to them, this is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. That Jesus came as a fulfillment of all of the Old Testament promises and predictions concerning the Messiah. But we could go through a long list of these, and we're going to skate over the top of a few of them this morning. But, but there are many predictions about the Messiah coming that Jesus himself fulfills. The promise begins all the way right back at the very, very start of the Bible. In Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15, that the gospel is first presented where Jesus would have a conflict with Satan and that Satan might injure him, but ultimately it would be the seed of the woman who would crush the head of the serpent. Jesus is that person. To Abraham in Genesis chapter 12 and verse 3, God said that he, he, his blessing to humanity would come through the line of this man, Abraham. In Genesis 17, verse 19, God promises Abraham that he will establish his covenant through Isaac, the son of Sarah, and not Ishmael, the son of Hagar. Isaac has two sons, Jacob and Esau. In Numbers chapter 24 and verse 17, the scripture says, I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star will come out of Jacob, a scepter will rise out of Israel. I see him, but not now. Speaks of one who is to come, who hasn't yet been born. A scepter is what kings hold. And the promise is, is that the king will come out of Jacob's lineage and not Esau's. Jacob, Isaac has Jacob and then Jacob has 12 sons. And one of those sons is Judah. Genesis 49 and verse 10. The scepter will not depart from Judah and the obedience of the nations shall be his. This scepter is Jesus as king. And so the promised Messiah, the one sent from God, the one predicted and prophesied about even from the very start of Genesis, it is promised to Eve and would be born of a woman. Specifically from the family of Abraham, more specifically from Isaac and not Ishmael, narrowed down further to Jacob, not Esau, and of all of Jacob's sons from one tribe or line from the tribe of Judah. Isaiah 7 verse 14 says, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel. Isaiah is prophesying hundreds of years before the birth of Jesus in Bethlehem. And so again, narrowing who is this person to come. And these are the credentials of the one who God has sent. That the Messiah will be born of a virgin. That really narrows down the potential candidates for a Messiah. Micah 5 verse 2. 
But you, Bethlehem, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from old, from ancient times. Micah reinforces again hundreds of years before the birth of Christ that the ruler of Israel, whose origins are eternal, will come from the clan of Judah. That Jesus didn't start at the virgin birth. No, no, Jesus existed at the very foundations of the earth. It was God stepping into human history when he was born of the virgin. And specifically, the scripture says, not only would, would their origins come from the clan of Judah, but specifically to be born in Bethlehem. Some critics of Christianity and of Jesus say that, well, you know, Jesus knew the Old Testament prophecies and about the Messiah, and so he set up his life to give the impression that he was the Messiah. I'm not really sure how a child in the womb sets up the place of his birth. Or from the womb, how a fetus compels a Roman governor to compel all of his subjects to travel to their hometowns to register for tax purposes. And yet, these predictions about the Messiah are true of the person of Jesus. Malachi chapter 3 and verse 1 tells us that the Messiah would go to the temple. If you know Jewish history, then you know that the temple was destroyed in 70 AD. And so the Messiah had to come before 70 AD. And there hasn't been a Jewish temple for almost 2,000 years. Isaiah 53 verses 5 and 6 tells us that the Messiah will heal people, and Jesus did that. Zechariah 9 verse 9 says that he would arrive in Jerusalem on a donkey. In Psalm 41 verse 9 predicts the fact that Judas would betray him. In Zechariah 11, verses 12 to 13, that Jesus would be sold for 30 pieces of silver. And that's exactly what happens. And so, of course, there are many more specific claims about the prophecies concerning the Messiah, all of which Jesus fulfilled. I know I'm skating over these scriptures and some of you are trying to take down notes. I'm watching you get disappointed as they disappear on the screen behind me, right? Maybe we'll put them in the newsletter this week so you can have a look at them. All in one big list. But but here's the point. To be able to look at the baby in the manger and to think cute kid is to totally misunderstand who this child really is. This is not the start. No, no, this is God who was there at the foundations of the earth. This is the Messiah, the one that the scriptures spoke about even before he steps into human history in the first century. Of course, there are many more specific claims and prophecies about the Messiah that Jesus fulfilled. And Christmas and Easter make sense of the whole Bible for us. Because the Bible is actually about Jesus and what he would do for us, rather than about what we ought to do for him. You go into many more details for this, right? Because you could also look at the fact that there are types and shadows in the Old Testament. That if you take the person of Jesus and shine the light of New Testament truth upon who Jesus is and what he came to do, it casts a shadow into the Old Testament. That when you look at the shadow, you can see that there's always going to be a coming Messiah. There's always going to be the Son of God stepping into human history. You can think of things like the blood and the more sufficient covering in the garden. That when Adam and Eve sin in Genesis chapter 3, God doesn't throw up his hands like, oh my goodness, I didn't see that happening. What what are we going to do now? Instead, God comes to them in the cool of the evening, as was his custom, and says, Adam, Eve, where are you? And Adam and Eve are hiding because for the first time they realize shame. They've never felt that before, but they've done 
the very thing God asked them not to do, and now they've felt shame for the first time, and they're hiding. God's coming to them asking, where are you? Not because he's lost them. He's sovereign. He's God. He's not asking it for his benefit. He's asking it for theirs. He needs for them, for there to be any chance of relationship, for them to acknowledge where they are in relation to where he is. And so God comes looking, saying, Adam, Eve, where are you? But when they finally pipe up, they begin to blame each other, and then finally the serpent. And and remember what God does. They've tried to cover their shame with, with fig leaves to try and hide because whenever we find ourselves with shame, that's what we try to do. We, we try to cover up. But of course, it's insufficient. And so God comes and, and he kills an innocent animal and he takes the skin of that animal and he provides them with a more sufficient covering. It is a shadow, a type, that there will come a time in the future where God himself will provide a more sufficient covering in the person of Jesus, that we won't be clothed with our righteousness or our good deeds, that we'll be clothed with the righteousness of Christ. And all we need to do is call upon the name of Jesus to be able to receive it. It's a shadow. It's a type pointing to the person of Jesus. There's another moment like that in Numbers chapter 21. It's a moment where Israel is in the desert and, and there's sand vipers that are coming up out of the sand and biting them and people are dying from these venomous snakes. And so God instructs Moses, here's what you're to do. You're to take a bronze serpent and to place it upon a pole up high. And if any person is bit by a snake as that venom begins to move throughout their body to bring death, they're to turn and look to the snake. And when they look to the snake, they'll be healed. That modern day... Um, a sign for medicine that the serpent on the pole comes from this moment in recorded history in the book of Numbers. Here's the point that all of the snakes in the sand have got venom pulsing through their bodies, being ejected from their fangs. But the minute you're bit, you need to not look at what's around you. You need to begin to lift your eyes and look to the one serpent that's without venom. In the same way that that all men carry the venom of sin. But there was one man who was completely without sin, who was hung on a tree up high. And all you and I need to be able to do is look to the one who was without sin, without venom, in order for our lives to be saved and made whole. It's a type. It's a shadow. In Numbers chapter 20, God gets a bit upset with Moses. At one point, Israel is without water and God instructs Moses to be able to strike the rock. And when Moses strikes the rock, water begins to flow from the rock and Israel has water to be able to drink. Well, in Numbers chapter 20, there's a second moment that's like this. And this time they're without water and God says to Moses, he says, speak to the rock. And Moses is so frustrated with the people, he can't believe that they're still complaining, that in his frustration, he takes his staff and he strikes the rock. And God says, Moses, you can't go into the promised land now. Which seems like a massive overreaction on God's behalf. But until you realize that actually God is setting up a picture, that the rock of our salvation, Jesus, would be struck once. And once and for all. And from that moment forward, we wouldn't need to strike the rock. We would need to speak to the rock in order for living water to be able to flow. Jesus wouldn't have to be crucified many times. He would be crucified once and once and for all. And then all you and I need to be able to do is to be able to speak to the rock, right? To be able to call upon the name of Jesus. That's why God gets so upset with Moses and says you can't go into the promised land because Moses destroys the picture that God was trying to create. In many ways, 
Throughout the Bible, there is a constant pointing towards the fact that Jesus is the one who was always intended to come. That when Adam and Eve sit in the garden, God doesn't throw up his hands. That everything is pointing towards him. Which is why I said, when you think of the Christmas story, if we were to look upon Jesus in the manger and think to ourselves, that's a cute baby. We'd be totally misunderstanding who it is who actually was in that crib on that night. Jesus fulfills all the promises and prophecies of the Old Testament concerning the Messiah. There were generations of people who waited eagerly and anticipated God making good on his promise. And the Christmas account is good news because it is, in fact, God making good on his promise. And that's good news for you and I if we've ever felt disappointed. Because God comes good on his promise. That makes Christmas good news. The fact that God kept his promise concerning Jesus means that the Christmas account reminds us of at least three things. Firstly, it reminds us that Christmas, that God's plans far exceed our imagination. The fact that God kept his promise in sending his son reminds us that God's plans far exceed our imagination. That the baby in the manger, which we celebrate at Christmas time, is actually God himself. For the first time in history, men could talk about heaven as being somewhere other than just up there. That, that Mary actually looked down on heaven. But when she held Jesus in her arms, she was looking at heaven herself. That Jesus, in fact, made his mother. Normally people ask when, when a baby's born, do they look like the mother or like the father? Jesus is the only child who could ever be said his mother resembled him. That's completely unexpected. That's completely beyond our imagination. That God, when he fulfills our promises, does so in such a way that they actually even exceed our even own ability to be able to comprehend. For centuries, Jewish religious leaders and scholars had known the prophecies concerning the Messiah. Prophecies like Isaiah chapter 7 and verse 14, that the virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. They had known that prophecy and eagerly anticipated the Messiah coming, being Emmanuel, God with us. But they never thought to be able to take it literally. They believed that it was the predicting of some great leader who was to come through whose work, figuratively speaking, God would be present with his people. But the gospel writer Matthew in Matthew chapter 1 quotes the prophecy and says this promise is greater than any of us ever could have imagined. It came true not figuratively. It actually came true literally that Jesus Christ is God with us because the human growing in the womb of Mary is a miracle performed by God himself. The child literally is God. And so Christmas reminds us that God's plans far exceed our imagination. That with his word, God created the universe. Let there be light. Remember that story? That with his word, God created the universe. But he had his birthplace dictated by a Roman edict. That here in the manger is the one who clothed the grass of the field with flowers. But he came into the world himself naked. This is the God who made the sun to shine with all of its warmth. 
but he needed the breath of a donkey to keep him warm in a stable. That his hands fashioned the planets, and yet he entered the world with hands so small he couldn't reach out and pat his own creation. He, he's omnipotent, but here he is wrapped in swaddling clothes. Salvation in a manger, not simply a baby in a manger. God where you would least expect to be able to find him. But isn't that just like God? That when God does something, it does far exceed our imagination because he's infinite and we're finite. That when God sets about to be able to fulfill a promise, it blows us away. That when God does a miracle in a person's life, we're completely floored by it. Why? Because when God sets about to do something, particularly to fulfill a promise, it exceeds even our imagination. Ephesians chapter 3 and verse 20, one of my favorite scriptures says this, Now to him talking about God, now to him who's able to do immeasurably more than we could ask or imagine according to his power that's at work within us. Can I tell you, if you are believing God for a miracle, if you are facing an impossible situation, the Christmas story ought to encourage you that not only does God keep his promises, but when God keeps a promise, he does it to the extent that it totally blows your mind. But because God is not limited in the way that we are, that when God fulfills a promise, when God sets about to do a thing, that, that he does so in a way that exceeds our imagination, God is able to do immeasurably more. There's no measurement or, 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 or um, metric to be able to scale what God's able to do. That God can do exceedingly abundantly above all that we could ask or think or imagine according to his power that's at work within us. And so you may be finding that I'm facing an impossible situation. But if you bring God into the mix, if you'll get a word from God, then this is the same God who follows through on his promises. He promised it all the way back at the start of the book. He reminded us all the way through the Old Testament. And then he makes good on his promise when Jesus comes, not figuratively, but literally. Secondly, Christmas reminds us to stay expectant. That God is sovereign over history. That God is working, even when we can't see it, even when we're not aware of it, God is working. That he doesn't sleep and he doesn't slumber, that God is sovereign over all of history, which means God's sovereign in your story as well. God's working all the details together for his glory. That there were generations of people who eagerly anticipated the coming of the Messiah. They waited with anticipation for the Messiah to come. There were generations of people like that. One of those was a man called Simeon, who was led to the temple by the Holy Spirit as Mary and Joseph went to dedicate Jesus. Luke records it for us in his gospel in Luke chapter 2 and verse 28. It's one of those incidental stories in the Christmas account. But it meant a lot to Simeon. Luke chapter 2, verse 28, Simeon took him in his arms, talking about Jesus, and praised God, saying, Sovereign Lord, as you have promised, you may now dismiss your servant in peace. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the sight of all nations, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. Imagine what that was like for Simeon. A godly man who had waited with anticipation for God's promise to come, then being able to hold his Savior and the promise in his own arms. 
Simeon had a confident expectation that God would fulfill his promise and he actually got to see and hold his saviour personally. But that's what faith is, right? A confident expectation in the character and the nature of God that he's good. Isn't that what the scripture says? That without faith, it's impossible to please God because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists and that he's the rewarder of those that diligently seek him. That faith by its nature gives us a confident expectation, firstly, that God exists, but not simply that he exists, but that he's good, that he's a rewarder of those that diligently seek him. And so the Christmas account ought to remind us to stay expected because we serve a God who follows through on his promises, a God who responds to faith because he's good. The Christmas story reminds us to keep a confident expectation of God. I wonder this morning, what is it that you're expecting of God? That maybe you're in church, maybe you've been in church every Sunday this year, but maybe today's the first time you've been in church in a really long time. But regardless, what's your expectation of God? What do you believe in God to be able to do? Here's what I've found to be true in my own life. It's very easy to end up on autopilot, Right? Just letting one day roll into the next. Just even hearing this Christmas story, I've got to remind myself, even as the pastor, right, that I shouldn't be lost in the details of this because I've heard it before. This is amazing. This is the good news. This is the very news that the angels said would bring great tidings of joy to all people in all generations. So what is your expectation of God? What are you believing him to be able to do? I found in my life that oftentimes you don't get what you you don't get what you believe for, you get what you settle for. So what is the confident expectation of your heart for God? I found this to be true for Elise and I, that, that when you expect God to do a little, he'll do a little. And you expect God to be able to do a lot. It's amazing. God does a lot. When you expect God to do nothing. You leave him with little room to operate. Why? Because God doesn't respond to need. God responds to faith. And faith is always first expressed as a confident expectation in a good God. So can I ask you, what is what, what you're expecting God to do? What is it that you're believing God to do? What, what is it that you're praying and asking God to be able to do? They don't accept things just as they are. That, Don't just go through life just one day after the next. Have a confident expectation in God. Have a confident expectation in the fact that he keeps his promises. Here's the third one as the worship team comes back this morning. Christmas reminds us that God is faithful to keep his promises. Numbers chapter 23 and verse 19 says this. God is not a man that he should lie nor a human being, that he should change his mind? Does he speak and not act? Does he promise and not fulfill? That to me is is such an encouraging scripture. Because if you've ever had a promise from God that hasn't been fulfilled in your life yet, there's a temptation to think, did I get it wrong? Did God really say that? Am I just off with the fairies here? Sometimes you find those doubts in your own life and it's okay. God's not scared about your doubts. 
When you read the Bible, you realize that there's lots of people who did great things for God, who carried with them many doubts. But God is not a man that he should lie, nor a human being that he should change his mind. Does he speak and not act? Does he promise and not fulfill? God can do everything except one thing. He can't lie. God can do anything except one thing. He can't make stuff up. He can't lie. He can't tease in that way. He can't be facetious like that. Because if God says it, then it must happen because he has said it. And so if God has given you a promise, even if it hasn't come to pass yet, you don't actually need anything else. His promise by his word is enough. Maybe you think, well, I don't really have a promise from God. Then my encouragement to you would be to open the Bible this December and to begin to read the promises that God speaks over you. The promises like, I'll never leave you nor forsake you. Everybody else might leave and abandon you, but God promises, I'll never leave you. I'll never forsake you. He's not a man that he should lie. He wouldn't jest or tease in that way. If he says it, then he'll fulfill it because that's who he is. It's true to his nature. If God says that if you confess your sins to me, then because I'm faithful and just, I'll forgive you of your sins and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. That then God is not a man that he would lie. He means it. You don't have to carry around that guilt or that shame any longer in your life. If God has dealt with it, then it's done. Maybe there's something more specific in your life that someone spoke into your life. Maybe it's something you're believing with a confident expectation in your own heart. You need to understand that he's the God who fulfills promises. If the Christmas account never happened, if Jesus never came, then we would be right to be able to doubt the good nature of God. But because Jesus came, we have all the evidence that we need that He is a God who fulfills His promises. He fulfills them over a long period of time. He gives reminders along the way, I haven't forgotten about you. That's especially true this Christmas for us as a family. Because for many of you, you know our story. You know we've got Jonathan who's nine, and Sophie, who's four. And we've got two little twins on the way. But that actually, that for us is a miracle. Because for us, that's pregnancy 10 and baby three and four. But when we, when we shared that with the kids, Sophie was just excited. She's just pumped to have little sisters. In her mind, it's like having little dolls. You get to dress them up. She's got her own crib. They don't need their own cots. But for Johnny, when we told Jonathan, Jonathan welled up because he's old enough to understand that that this is a bit of a miracle for our family to have these twins. And so when we told him, he welled up with tears. He said, Dad, I never thought this would happen for our family. But that's just like God, isn't it? That he's faithful to keep his promises. And maybe for you, there's a promise that's still not yet met. That doesn't mean that God's forgotten It just means that perhaps your timing and his don't line up. It may seem like it takes a long time, but God will get there. He's true to his word. So don't judge God by your calendar. God may be slow, but he's certainly not forgetful. Think about Joseph in the Old Testament, right? 
that Joseph as a young man has a dream that at some point God's going to use him as a great ruler. But that's not what happens next. The next thing that happens is his brothers try to kill him until one of the brothers says, maybe we shouldn't kill him, maybe we should sell him. So they sell him into slavery. He's bought by an Egyptian slave master and he works in that house and he's diligent and integral. And he starts to exhibit the qualities of leadership, the qualities that God's already placed in this young man's life. And so he rises through the slave ranks and eventually becomes the leader of Potiphar's household until Potiphar's wife thinks, you know what? I wouldn't mind being with this young guy. And so she tries to sleep with him. And Joseph, realizing that God's called me to greatness, I'm not about to, I'm not about to, Give that up with, with you. He leaves and runs. And as he leaves the room and, and, and escapes from the clutches of this woman, he leaves behind his coat and she cries rape. And he goes to prison. And then in prison, he, he meets two guys and the, the two guys say, we'll remember you. And one of them gets killed. The other guy completely forgets about him. Then Pharaoh has a dream. And then after Pharaoh has a dream, that the guy who, who was in prison with Joseph says, oh, I remember there was a guy in prison. He, he was able to like interpret dreams and stuff like that. And, 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 so, and so maybe he could help you, Pharaoh, with your dream. And so Pharaoh says to Joseph, you come and interpret my, interpret my dream. And in fact, you can tell me what the dream is. And if you get it right, you'll get to live. And if you don't get it right, you'll get to die. Well, Joseph gets it right. And he becomes the second most powerful person in the known world that the prime minister of Egypt, God had given him a promise as a young man, but there was a lot of years between that promise and when God finally took him to the place where he had always intended him to be. There would have been plenty of moments where Joseph could have said, oh, hold on here, God, you gave me a promise. But this pit doesn't look like the promise. And being a slave in Potiphar's house doesn't look like being a part of that promise. And being wrongly accused and then subjected to prison that doesn't look like it's part of the promise. And yet all the while God was working sovereignly in Joseph's life, Joseph could have given up hope, but God was at work. Which is why when you read the words in Genesis chapter 50, when Joseph finally sees his brothers after all of these years, he says, you intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done to save many lives. Sometimes God takes the long way around but he's a plan that's bigger than you and I could imagine at the time. We wouldn't be able to comprehend it. When Jesus healed Jairus' daughter, his, Jairus comes to Jesus and says, my daughter's sick, will you come? Will you, will you heal her? And while they're on the way, Jairus' daughter dies. She dies before they even arrive at the house and then some people come and, and they meet them along the way and they say, don't, don't trouble the teacher. Your, your daughter Jairus is, is dead. It's over. Except that when God is involved in a thing, it's never over, is it? It's not over until He says it's over. We have a saying like that, don't we? It's not over until the fat lady sings. It's politically incorrect to say that. But it's not over until God says that it is. And so they come trying to convince Jarius, don't, don't trouble Jesus anymore. Your, your daughter's dead. You've missed, you've missed the window. You've missed the opportunity. In Mark 5 verse 36, Jesus told him, don't be afraid. Just believe. Jesus goes to the house and he raises Jairus' daughter from the dead. Why? Because even when it doesn't happen on our timeline, if God is in a thing, he is true to keep his promises. Christmas reminds us of that. That if you impose your time frame on God, you'll never feel loved by God. And it'll be your fault because God does actually love you. But he might follow a different timeline to you. Because he will fulfill his promises. 
because he's not a man that he would lie. God keeps his promises, but often in ways that you and I could never imagine. Christmas reminds us of that. That God keeps his promises, but in ways that we would never have even thought of. That the king of heaven comes not born into a castle, but born into a stable. That he did not establish his authority by a sword and by a war, but by his own death on a cross. That he didn't establish a kingdom in a geographical territory, but in the hearts of men and women. Christmas reminds us that God's plans far exceed our imagination. Christmas reminds us to stay expectant. Christmas reminds us that God is faithful to keep his promises. And so as we conclude this morning, maybe you're thinking, that's great. God keeps his promises. But I've broken my promises. It's great that God keeps his, but I haven't kept mine. Maybe promises in my own life, maybe promises to my own family, maybe, maybe promises even in my own marriage. Certainly promises, perhaps even in the way I've said to God that, that I'd like to live my life. And so it's great that God keeps his promises, but why would he be interested in a person like me? Because I've not kept mine. Perhaps that's why in the genealogy of Jesus, the way that Matthew actually starts the whole Christmas account, he doesn't hide anything about Jesus's backstory. You and I would try and hide parts of our backstory because we want to make a good impression, but not God. God, God puts it all right out there. You and I would try and hide some family members. But God's not hiding anything. In fact, in the book of Matthew, in the account of Jesus' genealogy, the beginning of the gospel story, there are five women included. That in its own is a bit of a shock. But because in genealogies, in ancient societies, women were almost never mentioned in any lineage. Women were not included. They were not needed to be included. And yet in the genealogy of Jesus, five women are included. That, that's unprecedented. But when you look a little bit closer at the story of who these five women are, you, you realise that God is showing it all, warts and all. That these women mostly were Gentiles, mostly were considered unclean, and were not even allowed to worship in the temple. One of the women in, in Jesus' genealogy in the book of Matthew is Tamar. Tamar pretended to be a prostitute. She tricked her father-in-law into sleeping with her. Rahab wasn't pretending to be a prostitute. She actually was one. It, when it's mentioned about Bathsheba, the scripture actually says it this way. It says, of David, the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. It doesn't actually call Bathsheba by name. It just points out the big mistake that David and Bathsheba had made. Because of course, when David and Bathsheba get together, Bathsheba's married to somebody else. She has an affair with David and then David, trying to cover his tracks when she gets pregnant, decides that, that in fact what, what he'll do is he'll order for Uriah to be killed in the heat of battle. And so he sleeps with another man's wife and then he kills the husband. And then Bathsheba goes through the anguish of having that child that was conceived that way die. You would imagine that for a great person that their genealogy would kind of hide some of those parts of their story. And yet in the book of Matthew, they're all included. Tamar, Rahab, Bathsheba, 
Matthew's reminding us in the genealogy of Jesus of something shocking. That people excluded by culture and respectable society, even by the law of God, can be brought into the family of Jesus. It doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter where you've been. If you repent and believe, you can be included in the story. That the world believes that unclean people could contaminate you. That that's the way the religious order lived. That they don't touch things that are unclean. Otherwise, the unclean thing might contaminate the thing that's, that's clean and so you've got to keep away. But Jesus turns that whole idea on its head. That it's actually not the unclean thing that contaminates the holy thing, but Jesus, who is the Holy One. His holiness contaminates what's unclean. That the you and I who are distant from God, who once never even believed in Him, that God might be able to touch our lives and make us holy, clean and whole. That's why Isaiah says in Isaiah 1 verse 18, Come now, let us settle this matter, says the Lord. Though your sins be like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. It's not the good in and the bad out. It's all people, regardless of background, by the grace of Jesus, the prostitute and the king, men and women, Jews and Gentiles, the moral and the immoral, all. Truly news that will bring joy to all men in all time. That that's truly equality. That all of humanity is equally sinful. That all of humanity is equally lost. That all of humanity is equally loved. And that all of humanity is equally able to access the grace of Jesus. Because He came. Lord, I just thank you this morning, God, for every single person who's in this room. God, greatly loved by you. Holy Spirit, I ask even right now that you begin to speak to our hearts. God, reminding us that you're faithful to keep your word, keep your promises. That we can have a confident expectation. Because you're not a man that you would lie or tease or jest in that way. And so, Holy Spirit, we ask that you come and speak to our hearts today. Remind us again of your good character. In Jesus' name. Thank you once again for joining us. Feel free to contact us on our Facebook, our website, and jump on our Instagram at mcc.church. Also, make sure to rate and review as well as share. Finally, from all the team at MCC, have a blessed day. And until next time, bless you.